Welcome to the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast. For our latest episode of Maritime in Minutes, you're listening to Marcus Hand, editor of Sea Trade Maritime News, and Gary Howard, Europe editor of Sea Trade Maritime News. Maritime in Minutes is our monthly podcast where we pick out some of the most topical news stories from the world of maritime on Sea Trade Maritime News. And today we're covering the month of November from 2022. November has been another busy month with strikes, lockouts, the growing dark fleet, and huge swings in different shipping markets. So Gary, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, perhaps the biggest swing in market out there. Starting off with Maersk, they reported another silly amount of profit for their third quarter 2022 results. But they did note that the bonanza of cash is coming to an end. The Container Group said in its earnings report that extraordinary earnings have peaked as rates begin to fall demand is softening and supply chain congestion is progressively recovering. A quote here from Merck's CEO, Soren With the war in Ukraine, an energy crisis in Europe, high inflation and a looming global recession, there are plenty of dark clouds on the horizon. This weighs on consumer purchasing power, which in turn impacts global transportation and logistics demand. The line actually already estimated a 3% drop in global container volumes on year in the third quarter as well. Nestled in this earnings report is a reality that I think is going to come to bite container lines as the supply demand scales tip against them. And that's the operating costs were up by 21%, driven by a 78% increase in bunker costs. When the good times come to an end for the box sector, there will still be bills to be paid. So yeah, definitely one to look out for there. Marcus, your story suggests that not everyone is down on the box sector. Well, no, and they are still making huge amounts of money at this point in time. And you've also got the port sector, which has a different set of factors. And that's where I'm going to turn my attentions to for the story I've chosen for the first week, which is on Abu Dhabi Ports. This is a company that we currently seem to have received more press releases from than probably any other, actually. And part it's constant. <laughs> yes. Um, partly uh, credit uh, due to a very proactive communications department. But it's also because the company is actually doing an awful lot that they are announcing at the moment. So, AD Ports would often be described as a terminal operator, but actually that really fails to describe the scale of their business. And for this story, I'd like to focus on their aggressive moves into feeder shipping. They set up Safine Feeders a couple of years ago, which has now built up quite a considerable little network. There's been a number of announcements from that in the recent months. At the start of November, AD Ports signed a $800 million deal to acquire an 80% stake in global feeder shipping. Once completed, AD Ports will own a fleet of 35 feeder vessels and the third largest globally by volume with a container capacity totally of 100,000 TUs, according to the port group. What strikes me about this is it's an interesting business tactic. As by owning the feeder shipping in the region, it can feed the cargoes into its facility in Abu Dhabi, which induces the main lines to call or increase their number of calls to meet the cargo demand that is there from the feeder shipping. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all works out.
And over to you, Gary, for week two. Week two. A quick note at the top here that the strike action that I think we've covered in Maritime in Minutes, but certainly covered on Sea Trade Maritime News, the UK's port of Liverpool came to an end in the second week of November as they struck a pay deal. So well done to everyone there. But my main pick is a story from Container Exchange, which highlighted a potential congestion issue in the container market, if you can believe it. But for the opposite reasons that we've sort of become used to, as consumer demand is slipping and retailer inventories are still running high in some geographies, notably in the West, container depots are filling up to the point that they're having to turn away business. And that was certainly the case for a couple of depots in Europe, at least. We're still in the early days of the container market readjustment and container exchange has warned that actions like the disposal of leasing fleets will only increase pressure on container depots, especially in consumer markets. This could just prove a, a hiccup as retailers themselves can trim inventories now that supply chain is becoming more reliable and they know when they're going to get their things and shipping demand should recover once inventories are run down but in the meantime there is a real challenge of repositioning boxes back to asia where there's room for them and at least in the short term container depots may be charging premiums for longer term storage to discourage boxes just idling away in very busy depots. I thought that was quite interesting. We don't often cover much about the depots. I think you've got a slightly sexier pick for your week two pick, Marcus. Yeah, it's a somewhat different part of the industry. And I'm actually going to be looking at sanctions. Sanctions against Russian oil, as we all know, are ratcheting up. But there is also one thing you can guarantee in shipping, and that is there'll be some sort of less than reputable owners out there who are willing to take the risk of transporting sanctioned cargoes in return for, how shall we put it, handsome rewards. As a result, we're seeing a growing so-called dark fleet, primarily elderly vessels, sort of 20 to 25 years old, that frequently change their name and flag, to often to countries you probably barely place on a map, and the number of such vessels has grown from 70 to 257 in the space of just two years. Brokers Poton highlighted the safety risks of such vessels, saying that these vessels are involved in accidents is elevated, and so is the potential that there could be harm inflicted upon the crew and the environment in the case of an oil spill. Now, just as this story came out, at the same time, it is this to underscore it, a 20-year-old, one-year-old Djibouti-flagged VLCC, Young Yong, had run aground the previous week in Indonesian waters in the Singapore Strait. As it turned out, the owner and the vessel uh, were sanctioned by the US. The owner is a company called Technology Bright, registered in the Marshall Islands. And the vessel was reported to be carrying a cargo of sanctioned Venezuelan oil. I am, though, pleased to report there was an element of pragmatism from the US in terms of the application of sanctions in the salvage operation, and the offloading of cargo was allowed, and the vessel was refloated. There's going to be plenty to watch there with this growing dark fleet and the growth of sanctions. There's a real risk there, isn't there? Speaking recently about the idea of the maritime industry being quite reactive, is it going to take a Exxon Valdez or similar for us to to crack down what is obviously a very dangerous trade? Let's hope not. Yeah, you'd have to hope so. I mean, it's worth noting that the VLCC that grounded right next to a gas pipeline. So <sighs> that could have been a lot more serious than it actually was. Let's hope it doesn't take an Exxon Valdez. If you're enjoying the Sea Trade Maritime podcast, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing on the app of your choice.
I'll pass over to you, Gary, for the third week of the month. Yep, time for a bit of labour disruption. I think this is actually a bit of a first for me in my reporting. I've covered a fair bit of industrial action, especially in recent months. But I think this story of Switzer Australia is my first lockout. We're used to strikes, but lockouts are sort of the other way around where the company says you can't come to work. (laughs) Switzer Australia runs towing services in 17 ports around Australia, and they announced a lockout of their entire harbour towage crews from well, what would have been the 18th of November. I mean, essentially closing many ports to arriving vessels. Companies like Inchcape Shipping Services announced they had put plans in place to vacate vessels from harbours in multiple ports around Australia to try and ensure that those ships were left stuck in harbour, essentially, without an escort to get them out safely to sea. And then equally, vessels were being told not to arrive, not to come into port, unless there was enough time to turn them around and get them back out again before this action started. So, uh... A lot of disruption, potentially. The reason for this lockout is a contract negotiation between Australia's three maritime unions and Switzer Australia. And this negotiation has been going on since 2019. Switzer said it's seen 1,100 instances of notified industrial action since October 2020. So there's been a fair bit of back and forth in this. But faced with the prospect of a whole load of Australian ports essentially being closed indefinitely, Australia's Fair Work Commission stepped in and suspended the proposed action for six months. I think this also covers the maritime unions on the other side as well, so they can't hold action. The FWC is a body that can prevent legally protected industrial action for a number of reasons. I think most notably in this case is they can prevent it if it would cause significant damage to Australia's economy, which you can imagine the essential closure of a bunch of ports might well do. Just on a sort of personal note, I think this is a pretty bad look for Mersko and Switzer. The group is an easy target for the unions right now, as it reports record profits as it did in the first week of November, at a time that Australian towage crews have effectively had a pay freeze since 2019 because of this inability to get around the table and nail down a pay deal. I expect there'll be a fair bit of anti-Mersk sentiment going around from the unions in Australia. Marcus, I think you're in the industrial action arena as well for your uh, week three pick. Yeah, indeed I am. It's interesting to see how the government in Australia intervened there. And I think that's also a possibility in the story that I'm looking at in week three as well. And in this case, it's industrial action in the US or potential industrial action in the US. A national rail strike, uh, you may remember, was temporarily averted back in September with a tentative agreement between the Association of American Railroads and some 13 different unions. And that's now looming again. The tentative deal was actually subject to union member votes. These have not actually been going particularly well. By the middle of November, US correspondent Barry Parker reported that three of the unions had rejected the proposed deal. The possibility of a strike on 9th of December is now becoming more and more real, and this would wreak considerable havoc with the US supply chain, which is heavily dependent on rail to move cargoes between the ports and inland points, being continental landmass. It's an extremely important part of the supply chain. And one of the possibilities here is that the government will try and intervene to avoid a strike. But even if it does, it all adds up to more uncertainty in the supply chain. And, you know, we're seeing this across the board. We're seeing it in Australia, we're seeing it in the UK, Europe, Americas, all different sort of workers seemingly just fed up with the situation and the pay increases or lack thereof.
Gary, I'm going to pass over to you for week four. Yeah, it's another piece actually that mentioned Barry Parker. It's one from him. He was at Marine Money's Ship Finance Forum in New York in the fourth week. And this piece notes an unprecedented time in the LNG trades. I picked it for a little nugget from Potens Jefferson Clark, who said that ton time had replaced ton miles as the key metric to sort of explain this meteoric rise in LNG shipping. I don't think that's something I've come across before. But essentially, as commodity prices rise, there's an incentive on the ship owner side to restrict access to tonnage. Now, while there are good times in the LNG sector, there was one warning that things could unwind pretty quickly if it came to it. If the outlook for LNG were to turn sour, and there's no particular sign of that at the moment, the release of current high levels of floating storage could mean that a change in fortunes could be a pretty sharp one, as I believe happened in 2018. And the piece does also point out that the LNG carry market is almost purely time charter with little in the way of spot activity, so I don't think too many people will be surprised or caught short by a change in the market. Underlining the market confidence, Oystein Kalaklev, CEO of Flex LNG, said that if he were to take a delivery of a, a hypothetical new vessel, the FLNG strategy would be fix it out, finance it, and pay a hell of a lot of dividends, which <laughs> summarizes it all pretty well. That's it from me for November. Marcus, I think you're taking us from the US to the Philippines to see us out. Indeed I am. For week four, for myself, it was the Crew Connect Global Conference in Manila. And indeed, the rising uh, wages for LNG-qualified seafarers was mentioned there, as there is actually a significant shortage of those types of officers, particularly now with LNG-powered vessels coming into play. Held in the world's crewing capital, CrewConnect Global covers a broad range of crew issues, but I'm going to highlight two areas that were sort of focused on. One is around supply, and the other is around recruitment and retention of seafarers. There have been ongoing warnings about the shortages of officers for many years now, and the latest International Chamber of Shipping and BIMCO figures put this at number as a shortage of 96,000 officers by 2026. Discussions zeroed in on a disconnect, though, between the sort of 25 to 30,000 graduates annually from Philippines Maritime Schools, and the fact that only around 5,000 of these people will ever go to sea. The rest end up working in hotels, restaurants, or driving grab cars in Manila, it seems. This raises both questions about the standards of training at some of the schools and the lack of cadet berths provided by owners. That was an issue, the, the lack of cadet berths was highlighted by both Max Saisai People Resources Corporation, who are the world's largest crewing agent, and Dole Seafront Crewing. That debate has then continued into this week on LinkedIn on posts related to the Sea Trade Maritime news story grappling with the shortage of seafarers. And I'm sure it's a debate that's going to continue for a long time to come. The other thing I'd like to come back to is the issue of recruitment and retention. And there was a fantastic observation from an LNG carrier captain, Henrik Hurlitz, who was on one of the panels. And he was speaking about the importance of crew internet. He noted that whereas in the past a new crew coming on board the ship and finding his way to his cabin, the first question he'd ask would be, where are the lifeboats? Coming on board today, the first thing they're asking is, what is the password to the Wi-Fi? <laughs> Got to get your priorities straight. <laughs> Indeed, but it does really underscore how important that particular aspect of communication now is to seafarers. So, if you want to know more about what happened at Crew Connect Global, as with all the other stories mentioned in this podcast, the links are in the show notes, 
or just head over to seatrade-maritime.com to read these and all the latest maritime news. And that's all we have time for in this latest episode of Maritime in Minutes. Thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe on the app of your choice to never miss an episode. Until the next episode of the Sea Trade Maritime Podcast, stay safe. <laughs>